You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Over the past couple of years, there's been quite a bit of noise around amending Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. You'd remember back in 2014, Prime Minister Tony Abbott proposed and eventually retreated from the reform. And just last week, you might have heard that Liberal Senator Cory Bernardi revived the issue by announcing that he'd put forward an amendment as a private member's bill um, that received the backing of a host of coalition senators and crossbenchers, all uh, coalition senators bar one, in fact, um, despite Prime Minister Turnbull's repeated assurance that the government has no plans to push for the change. As this issue threatens to again bubble to the surface, we've invited Professor Luke McNamara to help us cut through some of the noise. Luke's a professor of law at the University of New South Wales. He's recently completed a report on the impact of hate speech laws on public discourse and also authored an article in the conversation on this very issue. Luke, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. It's a pleasure. And so this seems like an issue that just won't go away. Why does this idea of amending Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act keep coming back? It's a good question, you know, because if we look at the day-to-day operation of this legislation, uh, it doesn't regularly cause a lot of controversy. So we seem to ramp up every few years when there's a high-profile case, usually involving a a well-known figure. But for the most part, Section 18C does its work quietly. And what I mean by that is uh, a relatively small number of complaints are made each year and an attempt is made to conciliate them, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And a very tiny number go through to formal adjudication by a court. So it is a bit surprising when you recognise that and when you discover that, as we have in our research, to find out that from time to time controversy rages. I think one of the reasons is that Section 18C stands in for some other anxieties people have about the state of free speech, about their entitlement to speak out on issues, and it tends to be a bit of a, a bit of a lightning rod for those concerns. And, I mean, is it also symbolic, do you think, that of, of social change and, and that change is something that people like Senator Bernardi don't want to see happen? Look, I think there's something in that, because if we think about the history of this legislation, so in the mid-70s, uh, the Australian Parliament decided to enact the Racial Discrimination Act. Now, it's hard to imagine, but at that time, to make it unlawful to discriminate against people on the basis of race was, was you know, was pretty progressive. Um, we regard that as a standard inclusion as part of our legal system now. But back then, uh, it, was, it, was, it was progressive uh, and it was a good move. It took another 20 years, though, before we thought, well, hold on, there's other ways in which racism can affect harm. And one of those ways is what we colloquially refer to sometimes as hate speech or racial vilification. People have argued about whether or not there's any real harm involved in that sort of stuff. But I think more and more evidence tells us these days that people do experience actual harms. They, their self-esteem is affected. Um, public comments that are racist can encourage others to engage in similar speech or discriminatory acts or even worse, violence. So part of what this legislation is about, that is Section 18C, is saying, well, hold on, we need to have a mechanism that sends a message about the unacceptability of various forms of expressed racism. And so if we go back to the mid-90s when Section 18C effectively uh, uh, came into effect, um, was there much controversy around that at the time? There was. It was controversial. So this was in uh, the latter years of a Labor government and the then coalition opposition opposed the legislation. There was a vigorous debate in Parliament. Um, there was uh, vigorous debate around a proposal to introduce some criminal offences around racial vilification. They were abandoned and Parliament at that point in time went ahead with Section 18C, which 
in the scheme of things, is a fairly gentle form of regulation. Now, that might sound like a strange thing to say, but one thing I'd like to emphasise and draw to the attention of, of listeners is that it's actually quite common. It's controversial, but it's quite common for various criminal statutes to make it an offence to engage in threatening or insulting or offensive language or behaviour. Uh, those sorts of provisions are standard inclusions in public order legislation, like the Summary Offences Act in Victoria. But somehow, when those same provisions and standards and ideas find their way into an anti-discrimination statute, somehow things become more controversial. It's something that I find quite confusing or, or confounding because people who are, you know, in support of amending Section 18C in some way, such as Cory Bernardi or also Andrew Bolt's obviously spoken um, quite vocally on the issue, uh, suggest that it's, it's some kind of um, grand, uh, I don't know, impinging of, of freedom of speech. But we have limits on, on our ability to speak about anything, like defamation laws, for one, um, prevents us from saying certain things because we'll face potential legal action if we do so. Yeah, look, I, I think you're onto something there. I think it's a very self-serving argument to say that this particular provision uh, is a massive assault on Australian democracy and liberal values and free speech. You're quite right that there's a whole range of ways in which free speech is regulated, um, rightly and wrongly. So I'm not suggesting that all infringements are appropriate, but I think we need to have robust debates around all of those issues, around, for example... Uh, defamation laws around restrictions on what doctors can say, doctors who have served um, for the government in detention centres, for example, uh, what political protesters can say and do. There's a whole range of fronts where there are live free speech issues. But in my research, uh, I don't think I can really confidently say that Section 18C represents one of the most troubling incursions into free speech, not least because its primary concern is to regulate speech which causes great harm and has little value. Now, that can be a hard line to draw, and I'm not saying 18C always gets it right, but any law is only capable of, um, um, of being assessed you know, over a period of time, and it shouldn't be assessed on the basis of any one case or instance. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm reading more and I, I, I learned from you, Luke, and also in a recent column from Walid Ali that 18C really shouldn't be read without the following clause 18d which actually spells out when we can offend and insult and that's when it's done reasonably and in good faith can you talk about the relationship between those clauses yeah it is a really important point to make and um, the debate does tend to focus on 18c and even worse the debate tends to drill down into the inclusion of particular words particularly offend and insult and it really is misleading to take those words in isolation because first of all you need to recognize that within 18c those words exist as part of a, a string of words which is a common technique used in legal drafting offend insult humiliate intimidate and the courts have consistently held that that is not a low bar that is not just a slight um um, upset. That is actually something quite serious and has long-lasting effects. So the bar is set quite high. And then in addition, we need to recognise that when Parliament enacted Section 18C, they at the very same time enacted Section 18D. And Section 18D is expressly designed to provide exemptions so that if a person genuinely and reasonably engages in public discourse, which might have the effect of causing offence, insult, or humiliation or intimidation even, but they do so for a legitimate purpose. They do so because they want to have a robust debate around immigration. They want to express a view about artistic limits. They want to express a view about religion, whatever it might be. So 18D is an important part of this equation because we can't really 
criticise Section 18C for curtailing free speech without recognising that 18D is expressly designed to preserve a substantial margin of latitude for speakers. What people like uh, Cory Bernardi have advocated in his recent um, proposal to put forward a private member's bill to amend Section 18C is to remove the words insult and defend from, from that. What effect would that have on the way the law actually functions, do you think? Look, it's a good question and it's hard to know exactly because it would be a matter of time before we saw whether the nature of complaints coming in the door through the Human Rights Commission changed and more specifically whether the courts, when they were called upon to adjudicate, were applying a different standard. I think, though, in the short term, there would be a very negative effect by that sort of amendment. It would be largely symbolic, but what it would say to targeted communities is we are diminishing the level of protection that we are prepared to afford you. And I don't think that's a really good message for us to be sending to marginalised communities at this point in time. My research has shown that many communities are already feeling particularly under siege by the comments of people who have strong views about Muslims, for example, uh, negative views who want to perpetuate stereotypes. This is not a good point in Australia's political environment to be saying we're going we're to step back from our commitment to protecting people from racial vilification. And do you see going forward that this will continue to be kind of a, a serious consideration, given that Prime Minister Turnbull said that at, at this stage at least he doesn't really want to go there in, in terms of amending Section 18C? Look, I, I hope the Prime Minister um, stands by his word there. I'd be very concerned if the government decided to adopt this view that's been expressed by a number uh, of backbenchers and, and, and some crossbenchers. Um, you know, I, I think there are more important things for us to consider. If, if we're really committed to genuine debate about a whole range of issues to do with immigration, for example, about refugees and asylum seekers, about Indigenous land rights and, and uh, uh, self-determination, there are debates to be had there. We shouldn't be focusing our attention on really what is quite a marginal issue. The existence of these laws should be regarded as a standard part of Australian multiculturalism and Australian democracy. Um, there is little evidence that this provision has done harm to free speech over the course of more than 20 years now, and it should be allowed to stand as it is. And, uh, I mean, that, that, that's your argument, and I wonder how, how you perceive then um, Lionhelm's, uh, you mentioned crossbenchers, and there, um, uh, David Lionhelm as well has uh, come out and said that he's been vilified with the angry white man uh, accusation that's been levelled at him by a journalist. And I wonder how you view uh, that uh, do you see that as vexatious or, or what do you, is it a stunt? What do you think? Oh, look, I, I think it's absolutely a stunt because uh, the Senator's objective is to have legislation he seeks the protection of abolished. So there's a certain hypocrisy in that and he's clearly done it for, for the media. Um, but, you know, any, any complaint should be assessed on its merits. Now, um, the nature of Section 18C is that it doesn't provide protection to any particular group. It says we should not be offending, insulting, humiliating or intimidating people based on their race or ethnicity or national origin or background. And if a senator thinks that his treatment has fallen into that category, then he's entitled to take the matter to the commission. But one has to be a little bit cynical about his motivations because it's quite clear that he's an opponent of the very law which he's seeking the protection of. And, um, yeah, it's very interesting times and surprising, I think, that this has kind of come back so early in the government's new term. And, um, Luke, very much thank you for, for coming on Triple R and talking us through all things 18C. No, you're, you're welcome.
talking women's footy now and it feels like it's really come into its own this year. We've been talking about it on Triple R and on this show for many years, of course, but uh, the National Women's League starts next year and over the weekend, the game between the Bulldogs and Melbourne topped the television ratings, which has got a lot of people excited. In fact, there were more people watching that game than any of the Saturday night men's games this year to date and I think something like three quarters of a million people around the country caught that game on the telly. Our next guest was there and she's also author, co-author of a book on women's AFL called Play On the Hidden History of Women's Australian Rules Football and uh, and Brunette Lankich has dropped by to tell us more about it and it's really great to have you in Melbourne and in the studio Brunette and uh, tell us about the game on the weekend. It sounded like it was um, wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Kalia. Um, yeah, it was a great festive atmosphere. It was wonderful watching people pouring in. And um, that's that's actually a feature of women's football when you go to women's football games anywhere in the country. It tends to be um, more... It, it's less corporate at this point. And uh, people go to have a good time. They go to... to um, cheer on girls they know, um, family members and so forth. Um, but it really is, you know, at half time people go and listen to the coaches' comments. You have dogs kicking footballs around. You have little girls in tutus kicking footballs around. It's a really fun family atmosphere. It, it had that feel about it from, um, I mean, just a lot of my friends who, who went down there, their social media feeds were full of photos with them and, and the players and it just seems kind of, I don't know, in a way accessible in the way that AFL hasn't been for a long time in terms of being allowed on the ground being allowed close to players. Yeah, yeah, it is accessible. And um, the players, I think it's become quite obvious that the marquee players are actually quite polished when you um, speak to them. They're, they're the real thinkers about the game. Um, they can talk about skills. They can talk about other players' strengths and weaknesses and so forth. And they're quite natural. A lot of them are quite young still and um, have quite a laid-back um, well, we had Katie Brennan them. on the show when just a month ago or something like that, yeah, and uh, and yeah, I mean she is just a, a sparkling person. Oh, and, and on Saturday the night, game. she went for some of her wonderful runs. Yeah, she's um, she can really break a game open, mm. and um, we saw a, a, a touch of that on Saturday night. And I wonder, I mean, when did your interest in, in women's footy begin, Brunette? I mean, I suppose it, were you a player, maybe? Or? Actually, I wasn't. I played lots of sports. I could kick and I could mark a football, but I uh, never got the opportunity to play. And, and uh, it wasn't until 2012 when my daughters, I've got twin daughters, um, begged me to try out for the state team, um, and, uh, you know, an age state team. And um, they, wanted to try out for, they wanted to try out for the state team, not you. No, no they, they wanted <laughs> to try out, yeah. Um, they'd done Auskick and then I let them do that for three years and then forced them to play netball, um, thinking there's no, no future in football for girls. Uh, and then... Yeah, so they begged me to play and to my surprise they got picked for the state team at age 14 and I thought, well, how's this? You know, I've had a lifelong interest in sport, I've played lots of sport, how do I not know about women's football? And so I, that's when I started researching. When I first found out that they'd, um, women had started playing competitively in 1915 in Perth, I thought that's got to be a mistake, you know, it must have been 1945, 1955. Um, so I started tracking down the researchers and it actually ended up the, the man who's now my co-author was the one all roads lead to rob all the research was uh, early stuff that he'd done um and he confirmed that yes they had started playing in perth in 1915 it's a really interesting story that you chart and there's been 
countless books really written about the history of Australian rules football, really from the men's perspective, but, but the, you know, gender doesn't even play into it. It's just assumed that it was a men's game the whole time. When you started your research, did you find it, it easy to come across these archives that, that, you know, had documented women's participation in, in AFL or Australian rules throughout Australia's history? The big breakthrough for me came when I discovered Trove, which is the National Library's um, digital archives. And um, uh, that Trove is now my new best friend. You know, I, I don't know how many hours I've spent on Trove and it's just fabulous. And I used to get so excited. Every new story I found, you know, I'd put all different combinations of words in. And w- we started finding that, in fact... Um, it wasn't just played during the World Wars, which is what it had been thought to that point. It was played almost continuously and all around Australia. In uh, Darwin in 1921, they talked about setting up a women's league. As far as we could tell, that didn't happen until the 1950s. But they were talking about it. In Queensland, um, they were reporting on women's Aussie rules football in 1918, even though they didn't start till the 50s either. So there's always been... Um, some type, of, some type of interest um, in it, even in those non-traditional footballing states. And yet at the same time, it was considered something that wasn't really suitable to women. It became suitable during the war, war years, when it was considered a fundraiser, you know, a, like a, a patriotic act. A, a patriotic act, yeah, and yeah absolutely. Um, but then after that, women just kept playing it because they loved it. You know, when I see things about the you know, discussion about payment and so forth, and I saw one really derogatory comment suggesting that women um, should play for the love of it. Well, my um, argument to that is they've done a hundred year apprenticeship. Um, they're skilled. They offer a really exciting product. Yes, I believe they should be paid for it and paid properly for it. Mm. And, and what's what's really fascinating too is all, all the images you've you've collected from the time and and the the uniforms that women were, were wearing or I guess had to wear in some cases with kind of long dresses and and I can't and they were imagine dresses, how they managed Dylan. it silk dresses and so um, ruffled very easily in in winds and breezes and sometimes ended up over the players' heads. Um, and, yeah, they had to try all sorts of things to keep their dresses down. Um, and they were playing in hats. They were playing in walking out shoes. So, But despite that, when you read match reports, it's obvious that some of them were just really competitive and loved this game so much that despite all the obstacles, despite being hobbled in, um, in awkward uniforms, um, they still went for the mark. They still went for the tackle. They still kicked the goals. And I wonder if you can tell us what happened from the 50s onwards. How did we kind of end up where we are now, where we have yeah marquee players, national televised game? I don't want to overplay it here. I mean, there's a long way to go still with women's footy. And uh, but you know, how did how did the the decades between the 50s and and really the last you know the 90s? What what happened in that period? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, the um, the game kept being played. Um, but competitions would be set up and then they'd fold again. Um, but it was almost like passing the baton. If you if you looked at all the places around Australia where it's been played, it's been played in more than 100 locations. In, in um, Tasmania alone, more than 20 different towns um, had women's football teams. Um, and it was through sheer force of... Feminism had a part, so second-wave feminism played a part. Uh, and... 
towards the end of the 70s in Victoria, um, women really started agitating. They wanted to play on a more competitive level. So rather than just scratch matches and so forth, they wanted proper games with proper fixtures. And um, one of the co-founders of the uh, Victorian Women's Football League, Gemma Griffiths, um, had two great uncles who were captains of Geelong. And she used to go to the footy with them um, after their playing days were over. And uh, she just got to the point where she really wanted to play. Uh, And she set up the VWFL with an American woman called Leslie Fraser. Um, And they did everything. And uh, they actually had a gig on 3RRR right back in the 80s, a five-minute slot every week talking about women's footy. Um, and it was it was basically when, when they put the call out, suddenly all these women responded. And even though it was difficult to keep a competition going because all the roles were fulfilled by volunteers, uh, the love of it um, just brought the women together and kept the competition going. And then um, in WA in nineteen eighty seven, a young woman called Joanne Huggins uh, decided she she was sick of boundary umpiring for her brother's games. So she set up a league and as she said she remembers um, a small um, ad going into the newspaper and being chained to the kitchen in, uh, that's where the phone was, in her parents' home when she got loads and loads of calls from people. Um, And the thing that uh, makes the WA Foundation quite interesting is that one of the men who helped uh, with the mechanics of the whole competition was Brian Cook who is now the CEO of Geelong Football Club. Um, so there have been men who've been really supportive all the way through and I was a little disappointed that Geelong didn't get a women's team in the first year because I thought you know, that his long connection to women's football would have made that really quite special. Why has it taken so long to even have a, a national women's competition? I mean, it, there's, there's a sense that this is only the beginning. We've arrived at this place, but there's so much more to do. I mean, I guess commercially and, and expanding expand the competition. But why, why have we been so slow to get there, given that there's, you know, a hundred plus year history to women's football? Yeah, I think... Um uh, and despite the fact that I'm from WA, and I'm not terribly biased, I don't think, I've lived in South Australia and Victoria as well, um, it, it's difficult just uh, financially for WA players to be part of a national, or, you know, up until now, up in, uh, to be part of a national competition. Um, so even though you had this strong competition in the West and a strong competition in the East, it was harder for them to get together. So they started playing national carnivals from 1998 um Onwards, But I think also sport is pretty stubbornly resistant to um, change in tradition. And the idea, you know, the thought was that socially Aussie rules football was a men's game, not a women's game. And so that's taken a long time to make incursions into that thinking. But I think, you know, the people who saw the game on the weekend realised that these are not women having a kick and a giggle. You know, these are women who train hard, who play hard, who play with intensity, who have lots of um, strong skills. Um, 
Yeah, so it's not a kick and a, kick and a giggle. You're yeah, that's at. right. Um, Play On is the book we're talking about, The Hidden History of Women's Australian Rules Football, and a co-author, Brunette Linkich, is with us. And I, um, I mean, can we talk about leadership and I suppose participation from women in, in another respect, um, Brunette, and that is as, as spectators and also as leaders of the game. I, I know, we, I mean, we saw that Australian story last week with um, Susan Alberti. And I mean, she's, you know, high up in, uh, vice president of, of the, the Bulldogs. We have a, um, a women president in, in Richmond. And I, I wonder, you know, can you talk about that? Because AFL actually has had women's participation with spectators and at the grassroots level f- always. Yes, you, you, and that's unusual right. in that way with other codes. It is. Um, always had almost um, half the um, spectator audience has been female, which really sets it apart from all the other codes. So it's always been inclusive in that sense. So it wasn't just that they were the ones washing the Guernseys and um, cutting up the oranges and so forth. There's always been a really strong participation. Um, and in terms of... Um, Leadership, yeah, we've got some really fine leaders. Um, and here's something that not a lot of people know. We all know that um, Peter Searle, working for St Kilda Football Club, is the first woman who's been um, uh, contracted by the AFL um, to work full time as a, a coach. But 20 years before that, a woman called Pat Micken in Adelaide was um, a skills coach for the Adelaide Crows. Pat was a former Olympian. She was a, a basketballer, so she knew all about elite sport. And I asked her what attracted her to it. And she just loves that elite sporting atmosphere. Uh, she had brothers who played footy. And she said she was a, at home kicking a football as she was throwing a basketball. Um, so... I think it's something about the game itself, actually, Kalia, that um, football is a game where you can be really skilled in some areas, but there's you, you can never be completely skilled in all areas. You might be a great, a great kick, but you might not have much of a left foot. You might be great at handball, but maybe not so much of a tackler. You might not be able to spoil as well as you'd like. So there are just so many skills um, and so much evolution in the game. You might start off as a forward, but you might end your career um, in defence. So I think there's just sort of all those combinations and permutations that make it exciting. It's, it's a great leveller in a way, isn't it? Because, because you're right, people of all different shapes and sizes can, can excel in the game. You can be really small and really fast or, or huge and a, and a great grab and, and sit in the, you know, in the goal square and just camp out there for the whole match. Yeah, and we saw Darcy Vescio on the weekend, who is not particularly tall, go for an absolute screamer. Mm. I'm not quite sure that she brought it down, but uh, she certainly got high and she certainly got in those couple of um, really handy goals. And we've got to mention Mo Hope. Of course, uh, as a Collingwood goals, fan. <laughs> <laughs> her six goals were just, uh, she was on fire. Um, you know, started a bit slower, but, um, you know, by the end, it was just almost every time the ball went near her, you knew that there was going to be another goal for the Western Bulldogs. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I mean, you know, when people become elite sports people, uh, they do become role models. It seems to come with the, the territory. And I noticed one of my daughters kind of measuring the height of the jump um, that of of the, the rucks in, in a game in the newspaper. She's kind of going, look at the, you know, trying to, and she's like, they're jumping just so high. And I'm like, well, they're athletes. Yeah. And that's what they you, do. Um, Emma King, actually, uh, my daughters play alongside her as a teammate in WA. And uh, at one of her games recently, she jumped so high that her knee ended up on her opponent's shoulder without putting her hand, so she didn't infringe, but the umpire had never seen anything like that and called it against her. 
just because mm. she slept <laughs> so high. And what about this um, idea of, of women coming from other sports into AFL now that there is a pathway? I, I think we saw that with the Rugby Sevens. I mean, that was well publicised during the Olympics that they'd gathered players from other sports and, and trained them as, as Rugby Seven players and they got gold. Uh, what, is that happening with AFL now? And do you think we'll see more of it, women coming over from other codes into AFL? I think if they've had a long interest in um, Aussie rules, that that will be a successful transition. Um, you know, having an elite mindset is really important. Um, being mentally tough is really important, and that's what a lot of other elite athletes have. But if you, uh, any of your viewers, uh, sorry, listeners, saw the under-18s game on Saturday, they would have seen that talent of that that pool of girls who've grown up playing Aussie rules right from the time they are five. It's going to be hard to come in from another That's sport and say. compete against them. There they are. The grassroots is already there. The investment's been made. And, um, well, all the best um, with the book. And I think people who are interested in, in um, AFL will love this book, Play on the Hidden History of Women's Australian Rules Football, and co-author is Brunette Linkage. There's, there's one more question. I mean, there's so many more questions I want to ask. But um, having read your book and, and watched the game over the weekend, it, it seems that that the men's game, the kind of standard AFL competition as we've known it, can learn a lot from both the following of the Women's League when it launches next year, but also, um, as you note towards the end of the book, that, that the Women's League has been inclusive, that LGBTIQ people have been welcomed. It hasn't been an issue really at all. Yet in the men's game, we spoke to Jason Ball a bit earlier this year about the inaugural Pride game, and it's still really difficult for, for people who are same-sex attracted, for example, to kind of fit in to the male-dominated culture of football clubs. But it seems the code and, and the AFL men's league can, can take a lot from, from what's happening with the women's game. Yeah, I'm glad you've picked up on that, Dylan, because um, I think that's absolutely um, something that uh, the men's um, administrators might want to take a look at. Because, uh, you know, as a parent, um, I've, I've um, been at you know more than 100 women's footy games and it really is a, an inclusive environment. You know, that festive atmosphere I spoke about is um, something that... Um, uh, is a real feature, and if you could bring that into, if you could bring that back into the men's game, and I think that's what some people really miss about the men's game—that it's corporate and you're in your boxes or so forth. Uh, whereas the the women's game has always been far more community-minded, like your community cup that you play here against other broadcasters. Yeah, I know that the idea that there's um other games that you can take your your dog and your kids onto the ground at halftime and kick the footy right. <laughs> is um pretty interesting. But before we let you go, I mean, one thing that happened on that game on the weekend was that we saw a new ball size be trialled and I wonder I mean are we at risk that the the new women's league will be a, a place to try new rules or do you think that was just a, a one-off or how do you think it's going to evolve? I think in the first few years of the women's league there'll be some tweaking and um, let's not think that there's only one way of doing something let's try a few new things um, get the player feedback and decide from there like the, the smaller ball did make the bounce a little awkward on the weekend so you probably wouldn't have seen as many of the uh, run and carry players um, confident enough to keep bouncing after a couple um, uh, but yeah let's see how that goes Brilliant. Well, congrats on the book and, uh, and yeah, I highly recommend it to people if you're interested in the history of football and not just women's football, but football in general. Uh, this is an important part of the puzzle, I reckon, play on, co-authored by Brunette Lankitch and we'll catch you again. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me here.
And this morning in the reading room, we're talking to children's literature's um, most loved, I think, and most successful children's book authors, two of them at least, Sally Rippon and Lee Hobbs. Sally, of course, joins us monthly to talk about children's literature and book art. And Lee Hobbs... Where do we start with Lee? He's our Australian Children's Laureate. He's an author and an illustrator of dozens of hilarious books for young readers and is the creator of characters such as Mr Chicken and Old Tom and Horrible Harriet and more. And his ceramic work, Flinders Street Station, is part of the NGV collection. And we're so stoked to have him back at Triple R. It's been a little while and now you're honorary or something, Australia's Children's Laureate. Um, congrats, Lee. Thank you, Kanye. And um, you might need to move a bit closer oh, yeah. to that oh, microphone there. And sure. I wonder, what, what have you been doing? You're announced in February, a couple um, of months well, in? Yes, well, I knew about it for a year since April last year. So, uh, But since February, I've been uh, crisscrossed Australia. I think I've been to Western Australia three times and Queensland three times and Darwin once, everywhere, and including New Zealand um, a couple of weeks ago and Canberra last weekend. So the diary's pretty chockers. <laughs> Yes, Lee was showing me this just before we came on air before saying... And and it is interesting because I'd like to know... I know what um, Australia benefits from having a laureate. You know, I think the idea, and you, you might have some more ideas on this too, Lee, is to really bring the idea of children's literature to the public eye. But wh- how's, how's it been good for you? What have you got out of the laureate? You're a quarter of the way in. You've done a lot of travelling so far. You travel quite a bit for your work anyway. What, mm. What's different about being a laureate? Um, look, it's, it's an honour for a start. And it came to me, it was bestowed, sounds like I'm the... Dalai Lama a bit, but uh, it was given to me at sort of the right time because I'd, you know, back in my history, I've uh, 25 years as a secondary art teacher and I've got about 20 books under my belt. So it, it, it was good because I feel quite passionate about a few things that I'm able to champion as the laureate. And, not, you know, I'm not a theorist. I'm not interested in theory. Um, all the things that I know or feel passionate about are based on experience. So I'm able to put a bit back, mm. I think. And I know um, you've always been a passionate advocate of libraries and particularly teacher librarians mm. within Oh, well, schools. librarians at schools, yeah. 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 Why are they important? Why do children um, need librarians? Well, it's terrific because I've visited a few schools of late and... The horse's mouth, you know, the light, they've, they've been terrific schools that have got a library and a librarian, not just a teacher librarian. Well, the thing is that teachers have got so much to do now. I mean, they're, they're every sort of second week there's some change in, in the assessment and all that stuff and more things they've got to learn. And it's, while the bureaucrats are making it, that you know, this whole thing about literacy... Um, there's less time for teachers to actually guide children towards books, which is what a full-time librarian and a school library can do. And not only that, libraries are safe havens in, in schools. Good good libra- libraries are. Was that the case for you growing up? You said you were a particularly sporty child. Was oh, a, God, was a library? sporty. No, no, I was hopeless. <laughs> That's what I said. I'm Not sort so of sporty. still now hopeless <laughs> at just about everything other than art. But I was, I mean, of course... You know, I was in grade six fifty-two years ago, 1964, so that was very pre-internet. But I know even then, the library, this is at Bairnsdale Primary School, the library was like a safe haven and you could read or draw or play or talk. Um, and now I visit schools where there, where there are libraries and where they're really cooking. The librarian has finally calibrated the needs of the school to suit the library and it's fabulous you know Mm. and it's great because you know i could 
not that you want to hear a list, but I could list the schools where it's really working. Mm. And I know, I mean, just the stats, and I haven't looked at them for a little while, but I think it got down to about 13% of of Victorian primary schools anyway that had a dedicated teacher librarian mm. or librarian at all in their well, schools. Well, they're getting rarer. Yeah, and I, mm. I mean, is that, are you seeing that across the board in Australia or is it, is it, it different? Yes, I have. It's everywhere here and I've seen it in England too. Um, that You know, it's funding. And the trouble is, um, I think the issue is that it shouldn't be left up to the school principal or the school council or whatever they're called to decide whether you have a library or a librarian or whether you don't. I think it should be a given. Um, You have a library and you have a librarian, then you decide what happens with the rest of the funds. Otherwise, all this assessment rubbish, you know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Mm. when it comes to to reading and literacy, I mean, Mm. literature is fundamental. Exactly. But Mm. I wonder, I mean, you know, the classic question that, that librarians get for, for young readers anyway is what next after Harry Potter, you know, mm. and trying to expand and put the right book in front of kids when, they, when they're ready to have it. And I wonder, you know, whether that, that training is... Not all teachers know what, where to send kids with reading and well, it's very important, isn't it? They isn't don't. It? And not only that, they haven't got time. Teachers, you know, when you go... I know as a teacher years ago, um, you're just bushed by the end of the day and now it's worse because teachers there are so many assessment things that you can't make a left hand turn now during a a lesson a teacher can't because everything has to be assessed according to certain criteria so the teachers just don't have haven't got time whereas a librarian you know there are kids that simply don't fit in and you know some kids of six want to read about Erwin rommel's desert fox Campaign, you know that a li- you know you can't a, a librarian can direct those kids, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I've got to admit, I was like a bit of an odd bull like that. I didn't read kids' books as a kid. Yeah, and I, but I wonder. I, I mean, is is the the laureate role that you're in, Lee, similar like the sort of Australian of the Year role where where you sort of know what the passions are of the person in it, and you you have a couple of years to to sort of push and push that forward and agenda forward. Is that how it works? Or? Well, I. I I wouldn't presume to think that I can make that much difference and I don't certainly don't have an agenda I I I never associate that word agenda with me because it sounds a bit bossy or bolshy but I am fed income in the sense of uh libraries and librarians and also I mean I'm not a great hand and finger waver as far as kids reading you know one of the things that I feel very strongly about, I, I don't believe it's so that every kid is an artist or, or a writer. I don't think it is so. Because it's like if they are, well, every kid's great at sport, and I wasn't that. But I think the fact that a kid may well be hopeless at drawing or writing should not preclude them from the feeling that they can express themselves or write a story or a poem or do a drawing that means something to them. And, you know, that's a bit of a a quantum... That's a big jump from thinking, hang on, um, just because a kid isn't a terrific drawer doesn't mean they can't you know so one of the things I've been saying when people come up and say look my child loves writing what should I do I said get them a notebook and tell them to write their name in the frontispiece and you tell that kid that no one can look in that book without permission same with a kid that loves drawing 
because that means that the kid isn't afraid to do a drawing. You know, and there are, kid, there are kids I meet, or, you know, their parents tell me that, that are terrific at sport, but actually secretly these uh, football kids or whatever love writing poetry, but they're embarrassed. So that's one of the things that I feel very strongly about, that in these days, we, you know, everyone talks about breaking down barriers, that a kid that wants to write or draw, just do it, and which links back to libraries. It's the one place in the school where kids aren't assessed or ranked to death. And in your role as the, the children's laureate, you've already travelled so much, as mm. we've mentioned, um, and you'll no doubt do, do more travelling in, mm. in that role. How do you decide sort of where to go and, and which schools you visit? Is it, is it based on any kind of um, element of, of need or do they invite you or how does that process work? Uh, Dylan, need does come into it because about a month ago I was at, uh, in the Kimberley in Western Australia at a terrific indigenous school called Pernalulu is that right I pronunciation isn't my foot <laughs> Pernalulu anyway we were there uh, another uh, Anne James another artist and I uh, we worked with the kids all indigenous kids uh, for you know a few days or a week that so that was um, that was terrific so we didn't presume I didn't presume to teach them anything I just showed them different techniques and skills and we left them lots of materials and just they've sent us back little films they've made based on characters so Oh, that's, so that's a long-winded answer. I, no, so no, long-winded, I can't remember where it started. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No, it's, I guess you had yeah. access, perhaps, to these communities that you might not yeah, otherwise look, do had you not been the laureate. There are terrific people uh, in the laureate committee. Mike Shuttleworth uh, looks after the laureate diary. So over the two years, I've got to go to um, each capital city, I think, at least once, and um, visit regional areas. So it's very spread out. Mm. So there's a programming committee there is a, a little program, side where you, yes. you go, yeah. Uh, tempered by my ex- exhaustion levels, <laughs> I think. But mind you, Dylan, very little of my laureateness or whatever it's called, laureateship, is in fact this what I'm doing now, banging on like some kind of... Really? Mm. I'd always, I'd always no, thought that no, was the idea oh, as an advocate for... Well, maybe it is for others, not mm. me. I'd rather... I'd rather run a uh, a workshop mm. and get kids, show kids drawing things. And so you write, can make you know. it a personal thing, the Laurie. Yeah, well, yeah. mine's a practice thing. It's, mm. you know, I, I don't like making speeches and things. Mm. Well, uh, one of the lovely things I've seen you do with kids even earlier this week in the Writers' Festival is not only to take them through how to draw characters that you've created, but how to look at the world in a different way. So to, to look at a chair or a teapot and imagine it as a character. Mm. So that mm-hmm. idea, I guess, of children seeing that everything is, there's there's a possibility in everything that mm. there isn't a one way of drawing that they can all be taken through the same well there's drawing, no right way of drawing way. and i think yeah. why they do my characters they draw old tom mr chicken is i say now look kids everyone's drawing of old tom is going to look like him but even though you're getting the same instructions same bit of paper and pencil same character they're all going to be different because you kids are different now within that group are inevitably kids that are autistic or just you know Maybe, I don't know, they can barely put a few lines together. So that lets them off the hook. So if there's a drawing that really is berserk, you say, well, this is how old Tom feels. Now, for all those kids to get in a circle and hold up their drawings, we're talking about little kids, that's a big thing, you know, because you can, I can tell, it's my teacher thing, I can tell the kids that are, well, by their drawings, but also their 
how they're behaving, whether they're sort of freaked out by standing up and showing their drawings. And I say, look, Lachlan's drawing is different to whatever, to this kid's, because they're different. Now, you can see their little heads are clicking around. Wow, um, in fact, it's a good thing that we're different. So that's the starting point. And that's my thing about kids that want to write or draw, giving them a, a book and saying, you go for it. Mm. Let's not worry about whether it's any good. Other people can decide. That, that, that private space to, exactly. to make mistakes. Because, exactly. I mean, I think this is something that we... I mean, we do worry a lot about education these days, don't we? Mm. I mean, we we talk about it a lot, a lot on Triple R, but everywhere is like um, with the national assessments and oh, assessments look. in general and the VCE and is, is this the way to do it? And I think there is a lot of um, hand-wringing around that. But this mm. idea that you can't make mistakes or you have to get it right is is a great killer of, of creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing is, too, that kids are... I think there's, you know... To every bureaucrat that comes in with a bit of clout, they... I mean, I know I worked at Materials Production and every new Minister for Education, there'd be some new scheme or whatever, and when they left, there'd be a storeroom chock-a-block with printed... You know, this is in the 80s, late 80s. There'd be chock-a-block with books which were their scheme, which were now out of date, you know, some... And I think the, the, the... irritating thing is that it's the teachers that are being worn out by this sort of stuff and you know their instincts you know all the good ones are to go in and help the kids mm. so uh yeah, yeah. it's tricky mm. um lee hobbs is the the voice you're hearing and oh, he's yes. um yeah banging on <laughs> Bang, he's banging he's yeah, the, but that, that's the enough of otherwise yeah. i stand like a baptist <laughs> sally riffins with us Thing as well up. and uh and they've both been doing a lot for the, the recent Writers' Festival, but you're also both appearing mm. together at the Wheeler Centre today That's and right. a lot of talk. And I wonder, I mean, without sort of going too much into what you're talking about today, but it is about literary criticism of, of, of children's books, I think, in, in mm. many ways. And, Sally, this is something, this is why you're here, to talk about really um, uh, looking and scrutinising children's literature in the way that we do adult literature. Yeah, well I guess seeing it as an art form, which I know is something that's important to you also, Lee, to see because you you have a, a broad interest in art and it translates into lots of different mediums. So you do sculpture, you have an interest in architecture and history, and it <coughs> happens to find its way into storytelling and books as well. But a lot of us do other things and I think that I guess the idea behind this show is to show that in children's books that because we're passionate about creating these children's books it doesn't mean that we're infantile or that mm. we're just children's entertainers you know we have lots of other interests we like to engage with each other and talking about but not only that detail. i think i mean we count how many women, books by women are, are reviewed for mm-hmm. instance and and in our sort of you know in the abr and other publications because criticism and and reviews really legitimise work as well. Mm. And and that said, in children's literature, the audience does that too. Mm. But I think looking at books in a a critical way written for children, I think, puts a value on them, a higher value, I think, to to hold them to a a certain level and standard And it's tricky, isn't it, because our audience are children and they're not necessarily able to articulate what it is that they respond to in a book. You were telling me earlier, Lee, about a little boy whose mother had said that he was really connected to your books, but when he actually met you, he couldn't put that into words. And so we do rely on adults to be able to make their 
inter- intellectual interpretation of a children's book, whereas really it's the child that's making that emotional connection to it. So it's it's a it's a tricky area because. Do is it the child's response to the book that's important, or do we want an adult criticism of the book? Is it a combination of both? Do you have thoughts on that, Lee? Uh, You're well, looking at me very well, positive. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I think think it's about um, good reviewing and bad reviewing. Uh, you know, and maybe that's subjective, but I think all too often with kids' books, you get someone who they um, it's like they just describe desc- describe superficially rather than maybe thinking, what makes a child connect to this or that? I mean, I'm, I feel about this, uh, you know, definitely because, I mean, I've had some terrific reviews. You know, there's a bloke, alas, he's dead now, Morris Saxby, who was the foremost academic. He, he rev- gave Mr Chicken a fabulous review, Mr Chicken in the Paris. But conversely, some dill in the age... Um, said, basically, I don't know why he bothered, you know, this doesn't look like a chicken, it looks like a lemon with fangs, which in a way is very funny. Um, but, you know, that book, you know, has gone on, it's still on sale in the Louvre and all that, did, it did very well. But kids connect, ra- rather than think, now what make, well, I suppose it, kids hadn't connected then, but rather than, th- rather than say something like that, you'd think people would be intrigued, what makes a child connect to something like that? And it is, look, the thing is that you can, uh, for a, a kid can construct a story about breakfast. And I think this is what adults forget, that there is a rich inner world in a child's mind that a lot of us have forgotten about. Because that's understandable, we're involved in our big problem-filled adult world. But the, the world of a child is magic in their head and I think the really good reviewers can sort of tap into that, have a sense of it, whereas... The ones that don't get certain things, they think, oh, oh no, we're just going to judge it on the surface. Not on the surface, sometimes they can look, you know. And, I mean, <coughs> writing and, and, and illustrating and, and producing art, I imagine for most people is quite a kind of solitary exercise. And you were down as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival mm. yesterday, the illustrator in residence, kind of out there in the mm. open. Do you um, sort of enjoy that, that public forum, I guess, and, and potentially, I'm not sure if you had interactions with, with a lot of people out there, but being out in the open and being able to be approached by, by kids and well, parents? Well, Dylan, I told Sally, look... I, a couple of years ago at the Sydney... Well, last year or whenever, I was on stage at the Sydney Town Hall and there was just me and 2,800 kids <clears throat> all drawing old times to chicken. Now, I was a little bit nervous, but that was all right. I knew where the exits were. But <laughs> yesterday at the Writers' Festival, I said to the organiser, "This I, I may not be able to do it. Sitting in the open where people can come up, absolutely, I found you know, a bit anxiety-provoking. As it turned out, it was good because I had a minder. <laughs> I think she was going to tackle me if I tried to make a run for it. Had a minder and she got me a, a, a mocker. And uh, the, when the kids came up and their parents, they were all lovely and so it was good. Mm. So, Do you think it's because it, it's quite it's, difficult to create on demand and it's quite oh, difficult to create on you show know. and that, I think that's what your question's that's coming right, from isn't yeah. it? It's such a personal preoccupation to be in your studio with your thoughts and can you really do that on show? Mm. You know, is it possible? And it's different to the exercise that you do where you get the kids to take them through mm. a drawing <coughs> because that's something you've already structured that's something you know that works well but I think what you're saying Dylan which I certainly find confronting is just that different headspace that internal introspective creative space 
versus that public space where you have to be on. Do you find it mm. difficult to switch from one yeah, to the other? Yeah, well, I do. But what my luckily my teaching survival skills are what gets me what get me through all this. Because I've been be very authoritarian. Yeah, no, well, I am a bit bossy. <laughs> Hurry up! No, well, uh, uh, the the voice uh, when I do these things is in fact the same voice in the books. I write from you know the text. I write from an adult. It's an adult voice. It's not like I'm not a kid. Mm. And uh, so it's slightly bossy. So even when I've said, to, "Look, will you keep quiet, please?" You know, uh, you know, I'm visiting a school or something. Um, you know, they just sort of keep quiet. I think they think I'm one of my own characters. You know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And what, a, what about, I mean, you know, it's 100 years since Roald Dahl. We, you know, we see Roald Dahl interpreted in many ways mm. at the musicals or on he at the moment. He was very and, Yeah, well, yeah, the reputation is there. But, I mean, was, was Roald Dahl and, I mean, was he a sort of a influence on, on you or are there people that... that you know, that were influential on you when you were sort of starting yes, out? Yes, there were. Well, there was, uh, I was saying to Sally, but they weren't writers because I never read much. I wasn't that, you know, I, you know, as a kid, I was reading books about the French Revolution when I was six because I loved, uh, what are they called? Reference books. Hmm. Um, Information Ronald, books yeah, or whatever. Ronald, yeah. Searle, Ronald Searle, bless his heart, the finest English uh, graphic draftsman of the 20th century. He was the my influence when I was a kid at school in the libraries. That every school library was full of his books. So he informed my sense of humour and just visually, you know. In fact, I said to Sally, I had to put his books away at a certain age because I put them all away for 15 years because I thought, oh, no, I'm just absorbing too much of soil. But when I took them out again, I got such a rush of enthusiasm. I wrote to him, my only ever fan letter, <laughs> and he wrote back. So we had a lovely correspondence um, over a few years. And what, and what do you do when, when um, your readers write to you? Is this something I'm that... I'm flattered. I mean, you are, yeah. Fla- I'm flattered every time someone proffers a book to be signed. Mm. I think it's lovely because it's the it completes the contract and I think it... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in fact grateful that I still feel like that because it's a buzz. Um, yeah, they've put the money down. You know, I assume that they've paid for the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might have got it from the library. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, right. I can see you, uh, your connection, though, that you made there, Carly, with Roald Dahl, because there is a kind of subversiveness in your books, Lee, that not many children's authors feel game enough to tackle. I think that's one of the things that I find so fresh about your work is that you don't... Um, you don't write down to children. You, you, you expect them to rise up to your humour. They're, they're often quite deadpan as well, so the illustrations will tell one thing and the text will be quite pared back. It feels very authentic to you. It's a very unique style. And it's, just, uh, it's just how it um, arrives. Um, <laughs> I, I, I must say I do actively uh, cover up. There is a... Uh, I am a, a real softy underneath. So I think that, in fact, is one of the things that the kids pick up, even if it's underneath... That there might it might be subversive, but underneath there is a a good heart and a connection with the character. And so, is there a, a new character in you in development, Lee? No, not that I know of. I mean, Mr. Chicken, and I, I feel like I've got a whole family that are running amok and have left home. <laughs> so it's enough to keep them uh, under control. Well, yes, the Mr. Chicken. So the most recent ones, Mr. Chicken and Rome. Mr. Chicken Arriva yeah. Aroma. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is Mr. Chicken heading anywhere else? He's soon? coming to Australia next. Oh. <laughs> it's funny that you asked that, Dylan, because he's exhausted by learning foreign languages. So he decides to, to tour Australia only to his horror 
realise that the whole place is full of weird names like Yak and Dander and Cooey Rup and... <laughs> Tangambalinga. Yeah, oh, that's a beauty. I'll write that down. Yeah, I can spell it. Yeah, right. well. yeah, well, I can't spell, so you'll have to write it, can't you? Um, thank you so much My for pleasure. coming in. And, uh, and look, I didn't even check if there's tickets to your event still I going. I sold out pretty oh, quickly, actually. But I think people can still go because people may not turn. Yeah, just wait Stand by. Just in yeah. case. It's like the olden days of airlines or yeah. something. Stand by mm. tickets. Uh, Often uh, the Wheeler Centre put um, videos online a few weeks later anyway, so it might be available in a little while. Yeah, so you can um, catch these two in action with... Um, like Don Julia tonight yeah. um, and uh, you can yeah it sounds like it's going to be really good fun and uh, and all the best with your children's laureateness um, Lee <laughs> your laureateness and oh, um, hopefully yes. we can get you again um, back to Triple R before the end of your reign which I think is the I end wish of the year. I wish I had it feel like I should have some kind of uniform mm. <laughs> you know a cloak or a <laughs> you know what look Stuff. you're the third one, as mm. far as I'm aware, if you don't sort of count the cu- coupled up version at the mm. beginning, but um, you can start a uniform, and then I'm the not, next I'll one will have to one. carry it on. Yeah, there'll <laughs> be epaulets and a sash. I can see. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Sally Thank Rippin. Thank we'll you. be back in a month's time, and uh, Lee Hobbs, and um, of course you can, you should check out all, all of their work if you haven't already, mm. and um, certainly your children have. And the website's telling me there are still tickets available oh, for tonight's great. session oh. as well. Thanks so. for checking that, Dylan. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.